Number one, three cosmic messages, second quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome to Pineal. Today we're going to begin lesson one in the second quarter of 2023, three cosmic messages. And the lesson for today is Jesus wins, Satan loses. John Pauline is our moderator. But before we begin, may I invite God to join us. Gracious God of the universe, thank you again for another opportunity to delve into your word and to grow spiritually again. We thank you so much for our Pineal community and for John Pauline, who will lead us in a discussion today. Amen. Amen. So this session begins a new series on the three angels' messages of the book of Revelation. And the title of this one, as was mentioned, is Jesus Wins and Satan Loses. Once again, I get the privilege of teaching a lesson written by someone who is a student of mine. Sometimes I recognize things, sometimes I don't, but it's always good to see where people are after a period of time. Looking forward to this one because it's a topic that I'm quite familiar with. Uh, let's go to number one in the questions and notes. When one studies fulfilled prophecies in the Bible carefully, one discovers that prophecy is often fulfilled in surprising or even unobtrusive ways. Jonah 3, 4 predicts that in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. But the Hebrew word for destroyed is metaphorical. The root meaning is actually turned upside down. So the question is, in what way was the prophecy actually fulfilled? And the answer to that is that Nineveh was turned upside down. But it was a spiritual fulfillment. It was not the literal fulfillment that Jonah expected or that the Assyrians themselves expected, that God would step in and bring the city and the empire to an end. But instead, the city was stirred by the message of Jonah. The people from the king on down repented and gave evidence of that. And God considered the prophecy sufficiently fulfilled. So sometimes a prophecy is fulfilled in very surprising ways. And other times it may not be fulfilled at all because the conditions are not met for that prophecy to be fulfilled. So anyway, when you go back to the beginning of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, you have the experience of William Miller and the early Adventist believers. And it says here, a core Seventh-day Adventist conviction is that the 2,300 evenings and mornings of Daniel 8, 13, and 14 cover the period of time from a Persian decree in 457 BC to the year AD 1844, Daniel 8 and verses 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one that spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and post to be trampled? And he answered him, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. All right, that translation restored to its rightful state would not be a familiar one to the early Adventists because in their Bibles it said the sanctuary will be cleansed. And here we get into an interesting feature of the Old Testament background because in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, the word cleanse is there. The sanctuary will be cleansed, and the King James Bible reflects that. But in the Hebrew, it's actually the word for righteousness in the passive. In other words, the sanctuary will be made right. The sanctuary, as the translator that was read said, restored to its rightful state. So when William Miller read, the sanctuary will be cleansed, he drew some conclusions, as we will see. Early Adventists assumed that the sanctuary of Daniel 8.14 meant the earth. The cleansing of the sanctuary would be the destruction of the whole earth at the second coming of Christ. But no such thing happened in 1844. Taking a cue from the prophecies like Jonah, 
they now understood that the end of the 2300 day years involved two things. First, activity in heaven that's not directly observable from earth. And two, the founding of an end time movement that would preach the final gospel message to the world based on the book of Revelation. But while Revelation 14, 6 to 12 summarizes the final gospel message to the world, the message itself is much bigger than the content of the passage. So a reason for the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists to put out a lesson on this topic is to have us revisit the basis for the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It was an initial message based on the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation that was felt to be of vital significance for the whole world. So we read Daniel 8, 13, and 14. It mentioned 2,300 evenings and mornings, which Adventists have understood to be days of years. And we'll come back to that issue of days and years at a later time. But just for the sake of summary, they understood that that 2,300 years would last until the year 1844. And at that time, things happened in heaven, which of course we cannot verify here from earth, but we trust the one who gave the message, but also that there would be a movement that would arise on this earth presenting the final gospel message. Why don't you read, Terry, uh, Revelation 14, 6, and 7? I suspect we'll get into the whole of these three messages along the way, but just for now, read those two verses. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. All right, so here you see Revelation portrays in symbol three angels, actually, this was the first one, flying in mid-heaven, giving the everlasting gospel to the world. Now, this seems to be echoing in symbolic form the statement of Jesus that before he would return, the gospel would go to the entire world. And let's look at a couple texts that say that in plain language. Matthew 24, 14 first. And this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. In Mark 13, verse 10. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. All right. So Jesus is very clear that at some time just before the end, there would be a worldwide proclamation of the gospel. Revelation 14 seems to be echoing that that in Revelation 14, we have the content of that final gospel proclamation. And that was a conviction that the early Adventist pioneers came to and suggested that the year 1844 is the time when a movement to present that message to the world would get its start. And so Adventists looked around, didn't see anybody proclaiming Revelation 14, 6 through 12 to the world and said, well, if that's what God wants us to do, let's get on with it. So that's the founding situation of the Adventist church. But this lesson brings out other things that happened in 1844 and raises the possibility of additional interest. Number three, according to the lesson, the year 1844 is also significant for three reasons. One, the birth of Friedrich Nietzsche, who provided the philosophical basis for current attacks against Christianity and Christian morality in the West. Two, the formulation of Marxist ideology, which provided a non-theistic approach to solving the world's problems. In other words, you can solve the world's problems without God, if you follow Marxist ideology. And then three, it's the date when Charles Darwin fully conceptualized the theory of evolution, undermining Christian views of human origins. So the lesson also suggests that God raised up an end-time movement to counter the three destructive ideologies that emerged in that very year and helped to heal 
the religious fractures of our time. I would point out one other thing. Friedrich Nietzsche is, I think, particularly relevant for us because he explained that the whole trouble with Christianity, the reason it was so offensive to him, is that it portrayed a weak God who approved of weak people, people who put others first, people who side with the poor and the needy. Nietzsche said, these are weak people. The morality of the weak is those who are marginalized and therefore justify who they are by saying, well, we're in the right place spiritually. So he saw Christianity as the opposite of what a true human religion would be, which would glorify talent, glorify training, glorify power, glorify the ability to change the world in many ways. And it's fascinating to me that the same kind of attack on Christianity happened in the second century with a philosopher named Celsus, who basically said the biggest problem with Christianity is its picture of God, a God who doesn't win by power, but a God who wins by self-sacrifice and meekness. Nietzsche called that the morality of the weak. And whether we like it or not, today's world is much more influenced by Nietzsche probably than it desires or needs, particularly because one country that took Nietzsche most seriously was Nazi Germany and said, we will demonstrate what real humanity is all about. We'll demonstrate what humanity combined with power can do to change the world. So the philosophy of Nietzsche is kind of undermined by Nazi Germany's use of it. The philosophy of Marx is kind of undermined by the way the Soviet Union certainly bungled things. So we've lived long enough in this era to know that these philosophies probably are not taking us in a useful direction. Yet there are still people who live by them, even if they don't know where those ideas came from. So with that background in mind, let's start looking at Revelation. And we've covered some of these things before, so we may not have to go in depth in everything here, but to get the foundation for these three angels' messages. If you go back to Revelation 12, you have the depiction of a cosmic conflict. And in that cosmic conflict, as the lesson title says, Jesus wins and Satan loses. So let's read Revelation 12, 7 to 9. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Right, so we have a heavenly war being portrayed. But if you go back to verses 4 and 5, it puts a setting to that war that's a bit startling. Verses 4 and 5. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. I think we recognize a couple of things here. First of all, that the is an echo of Herod in his desire to kill the baby Jesus by destroying all the infants in Bethlehem. And uh, there's an echo of Jesus himself who was ascended to heaven after his ministry on earth. So that raises an interesting question. What evidence is there that the war in heaven has anything to do with way back in history? I mean, it, here the male child ascends to heaven, and the next thing you have is a war in heaven between Michael and the devil. So I think most scholars would say that this war in heaven is something that occurred at the ascension of Jesus, and that at that time, Satan was cast out of heaven and Jesus was enthroned as the ruler of this earth. What evidence would there be in Revelation 12 of that earlier war? I don't expect you to know this answer, but I'm putting it out there for you to think it through. Where would you go for evidence 
that the war here is a much earlier war than simply one that occurred at the time of the cross, the ascension of Jesus. Lou, give it a try. Good for you. Well, would it be in Job when it talks about the things that occurred and the discussions there? That's where I might go. I like that idea. You're saying, what's the evidence? Well, there's evidence in Job that there was a conflict in heaven well before Mm -hmm. Revelation 12, well before the coming of Jesus. I think that's helpful. Yeah. Jay? I have to be honest. I've read several of your books intended for lay people. Thank you on Revelation. So I'm a little bit intimidated to try to comment on Revelation. You know, it seems to me that the explanation that John gives right there in Revelation 12, tying this dragon who stood before the woman back to the serpent in Genesis, which was Genesis 3, that is the first time in the Bible that there is a direct link identifying the dragon with the serpent in Genesis. And that's a huge gap in scripture, but it suggests to me that there are roots of this controversy back at least at the inception of the Garden of Eden and the establishment of the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil, where apparently Satan was given access to the young couple. I think Tonstad and others have made a pretty good case that Revelation is not chronological, particularly Revelation 12. It seems to be a chiasm. And so just because verses 3, 4, and 5 are prior to verses 7 to 11 doesn't imply that that's the historical sequence. Okay. No, thank you very much. And by the way, just pedagogically, and maybe Alyssa would be a better one to explain this, but pedagogically, a teacher doesn't always have to ask a question the students are able to answer. Simply the fact of thinking it through, and we've gotten several excellent suggestions already, the simply the act of thinking it through is a learning experience. When the answer finally comes, because of the evidence that you've been pouring over, the things will be more memorable and less likely to be forgotten later. So there is some strategy behind all this. <laughs> Julie? Jesus did make a comment that he saw Satan fall from heaven. And the response he got to that was kind of like the people that were listening kind of seemed to know the same story and were pretty upset with him for saying it. So, mm-hmm. which seemed to be rather than a prophetic statement, a statement of something from the past. Mm-hmm. Yes, Jesus certainly recognizes that in things happening at his time that Satan's fall is being echoed once again. Jay mentioned Tonstadt. Tonstadt makes a very interesting observation that in chapter 12, verse 7, where it says there was war in heaven. What does yours say, Terry? Revelation 12, 7. How does it introduce that verse? And war broke out in heaven. Okay, war broke out. That's Tonstadt's favorite translation. It's what the Greeks would call an inceptive aorist. In other words, it's a point in the past rather than the present. If there was war in heaven, it could be read as a present in past language. You know, that so-and-so entered the room and there was conflict. Okay, so it's kind of a present tense, but it's using a past. This particular Greek form of the past, that doesn't work so well. So their war broke out in heaven does seem to echo something much earlier. So I think the war in heaven is referring to the time of Jesus primarily in 12, 7 through 9, but it's echoing the earlier war. And where's the earlier war? In verse 4, where the dragon pulls a third of the stars of heaven down to earth with his tail. And the tail is a symbol in the Old Testament of lying prophets. So it's through words, deceptive words, that the dragon drags down a third of the stars. And so you have a reference to a war before the birth of Jesus, a war that echoes what happened in Job and in Genesis, etc. So while I think it is true that the flow of Revelation 12 suggests that it's particularly at the time of the cross, because in verse 10, it talks about the enthronement of Christ at the same time the accuser is thrown down. And that seems to be the time of the war in verses 7 to 9. So you're focused upon something that happened at the cross, but pointing back to something that happened much earlier. All right, Neil. Just a quick one. We have always pictured angels with swords. (laughs) 
Isn't this a verbal battle? That's lightsabers, actually. <laughs> what kind of war is this? I think we noticed that philosophical. In verse 9, Satan is cast down as the accuser of the brothers. Notice his accusations, his ability to accuse is taken away. In verse 9, it talks about the ancient serpent, that the war is being fought on the same terms as Genesis 3, where the serpent tempts Eve. In verse 11, they overcame by the blood of the lamb. That's a little bit different than a sword, etc. Yes, so we're dealing with a war of words here, a war over the character of God and of God's government. Michael? We aren't given a timeline. We humans tend to think in terms of, you know, several years, maybe a hundred years, so forth. We don't have any idea at all when this took place in heaven. It could have been eon before the earth was ever created. We just don't know. But I think the important factor is that Lucifer, who we call Satan, devil or whatever, considered himself equal to God and was crushed and thrown out of heaven along with his minions. What's clear from Revelation 12 is that there's an aspect of this war that occurred before the birth of Christ. And I think Rodney just pointed out in the chat that Revelation 13, 8 talks about Christ being slain from the foundation of the world. So Rodney, perhaps you're suggesting that as some evidence as well for pointing back to the earlier side of the battle. So it's clear that something happens before the time of Christ, but verses 9 and 10 tie the language of this chapter specifically to the enthronement of Jesus Christ in chapter 5, when Jesus Christ takes over as the ruler of this world, and that happens in the context of the cross. So the cross is part of this. The cross echoes the earlier battle. The dragon casting down stars echoes the earlier battle as well. So we have in chapter 12 a reference to a heavenly conflict that started long, long ago and continued through the time of Jesus, a decisive event at the cross of Christ, and continues on to the end of time. So this is a cosmic conflict that goes from heaven to earth and from beginning to end. All right, let's go to number six. Revelation 12, verses four to nine again, but it invites us to read each of these in the light of some other texts. So in Revelation 12, 4 and 5, you have a dragon. Who is the dragon? And how would you know? What information do we have in Revelation 12 that tells us who the dragon is? All right, Terry. Verse 9 seems to identify the serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Okay. So Revelation 12 interprets itself in terms of the dragon. The dragon represents Satan the same one who was in the Garden of Eden back at the beginning. All right, well, who is the woman? The lesson author points us to Ephesians chapter 5, so let's go take a look at that. If the woman is metaphorical or symbolic, what does the woman refer to? Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. And verse 32. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. All right, so here Paul takes an analogy of marriage between a man and a woman as an analogy for Christ and the church. So within the Old Testament and the New Testament, a woman was often taken as, in many ways, metaphorical of the church. And the way that Christ loves the church is for Paul a model for how husbands should treat their wives. So this woman that appears in Revelation 12 would seem to represent the people of God. Uh, we mentioned already that the male child reminds us of Herod. 
in his attempt to destroy Christ in Matthew chapter 2. But then comes the question, what is this rod of iron? What does that represent? And the lesson points us to Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. All right, so Psalm 2 is probably referring to David, or possibly his son Solomon. And the rod of iron is God's promise that David and Solomon would completely defeat the enemies of Israel that the powers outside of them would be smashed, just like a rod of iron might smash. By the time of Solomon's reign, Israel was a vast empire. It was in control of its destiny and was at peace. So the rod of iron would seem to be the actions of David to expand the kingdom and defeat all the enemies around. So this is used as an analogy now for Jesus who holds this rod of iron? I guess that raises the question, what role does God's power play in the victory of Jesus? What role does God's power play in the cosmic conflict? Is there something of a contradiction here between a self-sacrificing God and a rod of iron? How would you bring those two together? I always know when I let the silence reign, this group is going to come up with something good, so I'm waiting. All right, Terry's going to give it a shot. I'm afraid this may be a poor shot, but what came to my mind was the demonstration is irrefutable. Okay, so the rod of iron means that the convincing power of God that will defeat the enemies. Lou? God, of course, is a God of truth. And truth, I think we know in the end, always wins out. The devil is a purveyor of lies. And it isn't that God is, well, like in Romans chapter one, where it talks about God's anger is when God just leaves people to their own decisions. And so it isn't a God that's out there with his great power, like a huge big army that's just going to beat down everybody. It's that he's very consistent through eternity. He's consistent in truth and in love. And in the end, love and truth win. Yeah, the war of words, the issue is not about power, it's about truth. Okay, Jay? I guess I'm just going to sort of reiterate some of the wonderful wisdom that's already been shared. But yeah, that it might be a narrow interpretation, but the sword coming out of the rider on the white horse's mouth in Revelation 19, it's significant that it's coming out of his mouth, and with it he smites the nations, meaning words and truth. And Revelation wins the war, but God won the war by losing the battle on the cross. In that paradoxical victory, he refuted all of the claims and the charges of Satan. When God is fully revealed, his character and government and the principles of the government and so forth, and he also reveals the principles and the outcome of his enemy, just like Lou summarized very well eloquently, that wins the war. And the, the war in heaven in Revelation 12, as you know, is polemos. That's a translation of that word from which we get polemics and other kinds of verbal rants and claims and so forth. So it can be more kind of a political or an ideological struggle. And the solution to that, to false claims, is more words and more revelation. If it were just a matter of power or force, it would have been over long ago. This group is always worth waiting for. Keep it coming. Larry. Is it possible that when you're talking about the truth versus non-truth and a rod of iron, a rod of iron, I'm going to guess, doesn't flex a lot. When the, the truth is the truth, it's pretty much it stands up to whatever hits it, like a rod of iron. Falsehood, on the other hand, has to morph into something new all the time because it's being disproven. And so you have to constantly keep reinventing it in order to keep it going. 
So is there some level in this scenario where you're dealing with ideas and things that you're going to rule with a rod of iron? Yes, God's going to rule with the word of truth because it never changes and it withstands the test of everything that hits it. One of my favorite teachers back in college used to love to say that metaphors don't stand on four legs. In other words, they're there to make a point. But if you try to run from the metaphor to the truth, you will end up distorting it at some point. The metaphor is a window into the truth, but it's not the whole truth itself. So rod of iron is one of those metaphors that can be misunderstood for its inflexibility, its ability to harm and things like that. But I think the way that I'm hearing this conversation go would seem to be compatible with God's character, that this is sharing with us the inevitability of God's victory without telling us exactly how it happens. Colette? In looking at all this, to me, it just keeps bringing out over and over again the character of God and how that is going to be reproduced in the people that he wants to take with him. And it kind of brought up a little cartoon picture that I saw years ago that I thought just really embraced who I was at the time. It's a picture of a little girl who's been sent to the corner to sit in a timeout by her parents. And the little caption is, I'm still standing in my heart. And I thought, you know, that's me. I'm still standing up in my heart. And God knows our hearts and he knows the hearts of the people. He knows the hearts of the universe that is watching. And he says, you're still standing up in your heart because you don't really understand me yet. And as this whole cosmic conflict plays out, God gives us so much evidence that when it's all said and done, there'll be no standing up in people's hearts. You know, that rod of iron, that's how I see that rod of iron. That rod of iron is irrefutable truth. Thank you. I appreciate those thoughts. Larry and then Rodney. There's some things that were put in the study notes and Ellen White comments on page five and six. And she made the comment that Lucifer was the most perfectly created being next to Christ. I realize Christ is not created, but in his perfection, in his character, he was as close to Christ as Christ could do. And then on page six of the notes, Ellen White made a comment that mankind was the crowning achievement of creation. And I realize that, according to Adventist understanding, there is a difference in time period, a long time period, between the time Lucifer was created, the war, and the time man was created. The part that puzzled me goes back to Eden with Adam, because I had always presumed, because there's a statement somewhere in the Old Testament that man was created a little bit lower than the angels, or maybe it's an Ellen White comment. So it didn't surprise me too much that Adam and Eve were deceived into doing something they wasn't in their best interest. But based upon what the thought that I had, is it conceivable that mankind, at the time Adam was created, truly had a greater intellectual capacity than Lucifer? Which, if that's true, makes his choice that much even more damaging and makes the second Adam, Christ, that much more powerful of a, I'm going to call it a reinstatement of humanity's role with God. I may be the only one that deals with that. Well, you are right that this comment appears in the Bible, in fact, both Old and New Testaments. In Psalm 8, it talks about human beings being made a little lower than the angels. And I didn't prepare this. I'd really like to go and study the Hebrew and the Greek there, because Hebrews takes it a little bit further. It says human beings were made for a time lower than the angels. But then he goes on, Hebrews 2, 5 to 9, he goes on to say, that it is God's purpose to put the future not under angels, but under human beings. In other words, God's purpose in creating human beings was to create a higher level of being than even Lucifer and the angels. 
That's not as clear, at least in the translation of Psalm 8, but I'm wondering if it's not reflecting maybe the Septuagint or, or something else in, in Hebrews. But Paul in Hebrews clearly seems to say that human beings were designed to rule the universe, uh, but for a time were placed below the angels as part of a training exercise, perhaps uh, you could say. Yeah, I think that's an exciting direction to think about, and we may have reason to say more about that in the future. Rodney? One of the fearful sight in the literal sense is a person with a rod of iron. When we consider the cosmic conflict, it begins with Lucifer bringing out false accusation in the character of God. and the male child having the rod of iron, I believe, is the way Christ in his very life crushed down all the false accusation to represent God the way it is. Interesting. So the rod of iron doesn't so much crush the nations as it crushes the ideologies. Okay. Thank you. Rita? One who holds a scepter is the one who has authority in a particular situation and imperial authority, absolute authority, if you like. And we're talking about this being a sort of iron rod that in our sort of Western mental image is something that would be wielded around and used to physically smash people. I think we've talked about, you know, that this isn't actually physical violence. It's a war of words. It's an, an argument. But is this really meaning that this is a very specific symbol that the authority comes from God? Because in chapter two, it says that people who overcome will also rule with an iron scepter. That's this right. verse is used. Yes, that's a good connection. And it does underscore the idea that rod of iron is a symbol of authority. You could say it's a symbol of power, but then when you're talking about God, the question is, how is that power being used? How is that authority being used? Yes. Well, welcome, Daniel. We have been missing you. Thank you. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, and it's a psalm that is an inauguration. So this is the psalm that the new king is singing as part of the intronization, as being inaugurated into the office. So when the old king died, the nations consider this is a good opportunity to get away. But the Lord speaks, I have my anointed, I have put him in Zion. And of course, there is this expectation connected with monarchy. And so the king is going to rule. And as Rita said, it's a symbol of scepter, the symbol of authority. However, if you want to know how God uses his power, how God uses his authority, you have to look into the New Testament. You have to read what Jesus did. Now, obviously, the Jews in the first century, and ever since they got a monarchy because they want to be like other nations, they have their understanding what a good king and a strong king would look like. But Jesus goes contrary to those expectations in his ministry and shows that he and God uses authority and power in a completely different way. And then, as Rita mentioned, it's also mentioned in regards to all redeemed. Now, are there going to be some other redeemed people in heaven over whom they are going to exercise the rule of iron and put them under some yoke and subject them? Of course not. And so, as you mentioned, it's a metaphor that stands for scepter and the sign of authority. And read the rest of the Bible and the book of Revelation to see what causes the silence in heaven that even the angels say, wow, we did not expect that this is the way to win the war because mm. the way you won is that nobody expected that you would exercise your authority in such a way. And so people read more into this based on their picture of God and, yeah, the overall understanding of the Bible than they get out of it. But you need to understand the context of the inaugural messianic psalm, which is Psalm 2.1.
too, and then how the rest of the Bible uses that. Yeah, they'll make your metaphor stand on four legs. Yeah, they make a point, but you can make too much of a point if you're not careful. Larry. I like what Daniel said and the idea of the ruling in heaven. I do hope at that point that the truth is a rod of iron, isn't flexible at that point, because I think it would be utter chaos if truth becomes flexible at that point. All right. Thank you. Let's go to the next section. And Terry, would you please read Revelation 12 and verses 10 and 11? Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not cling to life even in the face of death. All right, what does it mean? that the accuser has been thrown down. It doesn't just say, doesn't say Satan was thrown down. It says the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. So he's thrown down in a very specific sense. And I think the echo here is of the book of Job, where Satan is up in heaven before the throne of God and accusing God and Job in various ways. So when it says he's thrown down, what are we to make of that? The accuser is thrown down. Jay? I agree with you, echoes Job. I guess as a pastor's kid, you know, I always see things in a theological way. So I see Zechariah 3, 1 to 6 here as well. I think this passage here powerfully continues this theme of God's power and his victory is paradoxically based on self-sacrifice. And that's really a principle that's taught all through Scripture in some very powerful ways. Even the scorn and the ridicule that was thrown at Christ on the cross, what the Jewish leaders expected from the Messiah was this conquering king. So the Jewish leaders would have loved Nietzsche. Their idea of the uber-mensch, that's who they were wanting in a Messiah who would come and cut the heads off the Romans and his shirt would break open and he had this big S on his chest and he was a conquering king. And honestly, some of the Old Testament prophets also seemed to make that mistake. For example, some of the most famous ones like Jonah, he had a little problem accepting his call, but once he did, he was one of the best preachers in all the Bible. He converted an entire city, and yet he himself personally, based on his own theology and his view of God and God's character, he was disappointed that God didn't follow through and wipe them out. So I think that Jesus was referring to that indirectly when he said uh, the only sign given this generation is the sign of the prophet Jonah. I don't think that was just referring to Christ's being in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. I think it was Jesus telling them that your view of God reflects Jonah's view of God, and you need to read that story again and see that God wants to save and not to destroy. I'll sort of leave it there. There's a lot that could be said on that. But yeah, praise the Lord for his loving character and the way that he wins the war. Through power, you would never establish eternal security for the universe. But if you win the war through revelation and truth, that will stand forever. Thank you. Dan? I think that's a very good metaphor. A metaphor of a person who accuses and then is discredited. When you're shown to be a liar or someone you can't trust, it is very hard to ever recover from that. And it seems to me when a person is truly shown to be a liar, mm. and there's no way to get around that, I think it's almost impossible to recover. And I think in this case, when he's thrown down, that, that is really a wonderful metaphor for a person who is totally discredited. There is no way that he can come back or she can come back. And so I think that's what happens in the end. Satan is totally exposed for whom he is. None of his accusations turn out correct, and there is no way he can come back. He's totally exposed. Thank you. I love that analogy. I think that's very, very powerful that Satan's casting down means he no longer has any credibility in heaven. Nobody's paying attention anymore. And even if he went up there, it would be pointless. So he's probably not into pointless things if he can help it. So he is down, and so it is given. All right, Rita, and then Bob. 
the image of someone who's built themselves up and has been put up on a really high pedestal by all their followers comes to mind with the picture of Satan. And then he's found to be a fraud and he has tumbled an awful long way off that pedestal and comes crashing to the ground and is smashed to pieces and can't be put back together again. Nobody is going to take any notice of him again. His accusations have been shown to be totally false, and there's nothing he can say that anybody will believe anymore. Excellent. Thank you so much, Bob. Going to what Jay said a minute ago, if you follow up on that, could you say that some of the Old Testament prophets were better at describing God than others? In other words, if Jonah may not be as good as Isaiah in describing things, which could suggest that maybe when we get to the New Testament, is it right to suggest that perhaps some of where the Jews started heading down a different path in terms of what they were expecting could have been based on a view that maybe they got from a different, say, Jonah's view as opposed to some of the others? I don't know. I have always taken them all at face value, Mm. but I don't know. Jay brought an interesting thought that did strike me that perhaps you get a different view, maybe a better view from one prophet than another, and maybe they didn't have it all quite clear either? Or is that going down the wrong path? No, there are multiple metaphors for the Messiah. And one of them is that he'll be a king like David. I mean, David was the ultimate conqueror. David started out in the wilderness with a band of 400 men pursued on all sides. And yet a combination of his inspiration from God with skills that he developed as a shepherd. And later on, he became one of the great military leaders of all time. At the time when David died, the kingdom of Israel essentially went from the Euphrates River down almost to the Nile. So Israel never had that extension before or after, except, of course, the reign of Solomon as well. So uh, David established this enormous empire. So to say the Messiah will be a king like David certainly raises the possibility that he would be a powerful, conquering, political, military figure. But what Jesus says to clarify that, when the two fellows on the road to Emmaus are all miserable, they had these glorious hopes for the Messiah, and he ended up dead. And Jesus said, don't you know that the suffering has to precede the glory? So Jesus acknowledges both sides of the messianic promise, but says they come in an order. And that's the difference between him and the Jews. They saw the Messiah coming as a conquering Messiah. And Jesus said, no, that's a later stage of the Messiah's work. He comes first humble. He comes riding on a donkey instead of a white horse. He comes humble, and then comes the glory afterwards. So the New Testament acknowledges both sides of the Messianic prophecies, but puts them in different eras. Colette? So I have a question. When we see Jesus or God portrayed throughout the Old Testament, and you see this warring God, this powerful God making people tremble, my understanding is, is that God meets people where they are. And in the days of Egypt and Moses, and if God had portrayed himself as he did in the New Testament, there might not have been a lot of respect for him because of the way people looked at gods and how they should be followed. And so if I'm reading through the Old Testament, then don't I need to take a look at how the people and the cultures were at that time, at the time God's presenting himself to get an accurate picture of God? I don't know, is my question clear? Well, there are two broad ways to interpret the Bible among Seventh-day Adventists, and I would suggest among most Christians. One is taking the Bible as if it was written to me, and to go through and pick out the nuggets that seem to be spoken directly to me, and that must be the meaning of the text, that the Bible's kind of flat, everything is there, just the absolute, everything that God intended. The other way to read the Bible 
is, as you pointed out, to see the Bible as God meeting people where they are, God giving as much as people could handle at any given time and place. It's a different way to read the Bible. I think it's more accurate. Jesus himself says, I tell you ahead of time so that when it happens, you will understand. I have many things to tell you, but you can't handle it now. So seeing the Bible as a record of God's interactions with many different types of people in many different types of messy situations, I think that's a healthy reading of the Bible. And in that case, the Bible is pointing somewhere. There are many statements in the Bible that are not proof texts in the absolute sense. For example, half of the book of Job is statements of people that God says are wrong. And I I smile to myself when someone says, my favorite text is Job such and such. And it's a statement coming out of the mouth of one of Job's friends. And obviously that person hadn't read the context, but just found something, a gem in that piece, you see. But reading the Bible with a sense of the times, as you pointed out, Colette, reading it in context, seeing what God is doing in that time and place is a more faithful reading, I think, of Scripture than to assume that that little nugget there was written just for me. The Holy Spirit can use any nugget in the Bible to change your life, and that's okay. But if you're doing a community reading, you want to be reading the same text and not an imaginary text. Terry, let's go to chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, for the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. This business of accusation. I think accusations can be divided into two main types. One is related to guilt, and the other is related to shame. Guilt is being accused in regard to what you've done. Shame is being accused in terms of who you are. And Satan uses both of those tools as the accuser. Guilt-wise, he says, you're a screw-up. You're incompetent. You've made a mess of things. That's the guilt line. The shame line is you are worthless. You are pond scum. You aren't even worth the time of day. Both of these, guilt and shame, are amazing tools of Satan to derail us from the way forward. And what I think Revelation is telling us is that for those who recognize it, the liar has been exposed. The accuser has been cast down. Nobody who knows him is taking him seriously anymore. So when your mind is filled with a sense, overwhelming sense of your guilt and of your shame, that's Satan's voice. And you say, well, doesn't the Holy Spirit sometimes impress us when we've done wrong? Yes, but there's a difference. The Holy Spirit never brings guilt or shame without bringing a remedy. It is for the purpose of reaching us, saving us, bringing us to the good place. When you are overwhelmed with negative thoughts, when you're overwhelmed with shame, when you're overwhelmed with guilt, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. That's work of the accuser. And he has been discredited, as Dan said earlier. Don't listen to it. It's not reality. When the Holy Spirit comes to you, when you feel down, the Holy Spirit brings hope along with the reality. You need to know reality, but the Holy Spirit brings reality with hope. And that's the difference. That's how you can tell whether it's the accuser or the Holy Spirit that's working with you. And it says they overcame him by the word of their testimony. It is our testimony of what God is like, our testimony of what Christ means to us and the cross means to us, how we overcome. And the Greek word for overcoming is the word. Nike or Nike in the Greek, but it's where we get the term Nike, you know, the company that makes shoes and so on. It's a military metaphor in the Greek, but it's also an athletic metaphor. And that's where the shoe company comes in seizing that metaphor as well. We gain the victory over what? Over the accusations 
through the word of our testimony. When you're feeling guilt, when you're feeling shame, when you're feeling worthless, at times like that, reaffirm a testimony of what God is like, of who Christ is, of God's freely forgiveness. And at times like that, you overcome the accuser, for he is defeated. All right, enough preaching. Uh, <laughs> let's go to number eight and compare a couple of challenging texts. Uh, Terry, let's do verse 6 and verse 14. Revelation 12, verse 6, and then verse 14. I want you all to listen and again ask yourself what's similar and what's different in these two verses, because they're very similar, but there's some interesting differences. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to her place where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. All right, so what's common? between these two verses. You have in each case a woman, you have in each case a wilderness, and you have in each case a sense of nourishment. And so those are in common between the two. But in verse 6, she's in the wilderness for 1260 days. In verse 14, she's in the wilderness for a time, times, and half a time. And scholars have noted that these are probably the same, and that the 1260 days is roughly equivalent to three and a half years, time, times, and half a time, three and a half. So the two time periods seem to be parallel. Verse 6 says that her place is prepared by God. Verse 14 says that she was protected. In verse 6, it speaks of the dragon. In verse 14, it speaks of the serpent. They're the same, but different images. In verse 6, she flees to the wilderness, and in verse 14, she flies to the wilderness. So we can see from this that there's fluidity in the symbols of Revelation, that one entity can be represented by a variety of different things. The serpent can be a dragon. The dragon can also be the great deceiver, the devil, etc., so you can you see that the symbols are fluid, and this will become important later on for other reasons as well. But the question that the lesson addresses here, on what basis do Adventists see the time periods here in terms of a year-day principle? And if you'll allow me, I'll shift into lecture mode for just a short time because I don't expect you to have all the details here, but want to just cover this, and maybe later we'll have more time to go into it. Adventists have come to understand what is called a year-day principle, that in Bible prophecy, whenever a prophecy talks about days, it should be interpreted as years. And so these 1260 days become 1260 years when the woman uh, God's faithful people are in the wilderness, and things are not going well for them. Now, nowhere in the Bible is the year-day principle stated. You won't find a single text that says uh, exactly that. But Adventists ground this thing on two convictions. First of all, Adventists believe that God knows the future, and he shares it with his prophets. Okay, so that's one conviction. If in Revelation, God is speaking about the future and sharing the future with the prophets, then that text may mean something different than it otherwise would. And the second thing is, Adventists believe that apocalyptic literature is a sequence of events leading up to the end. God knows the future. And in apocalyptic prophecy, he's showing a sequence of events leading to the end. Classic case, Daniel 2, where you have a series of medals representing a series of kingdoms leading up to the second coming of Jesus. All right, so that's the foundation for Adventists. Then the question comes, what do you do with these 1260 days? They come after the time of Jesus, 
Remember we had that male child who went up to heaven and there was the war in heaven and Satan was cast down as the accuser and the light of the cross. All right. So the 1260 days start after the cross, but they end before the second coming. So we know from the passage of time that for this prophecy to truly work, the 1260 must not simply be days. It must be years because now you're getting close to the period. There's a period of the early church, then there's these 1260 years, and then there's the time of the end. And so the year day principle comes in, not because the Bible says so, but as we look through history, we see that it's necessary for the prophecy to actually fit. And there are a number of examples in ancient times of year-day equivalencies. Hammurabi, if you've heard of him, he was the king of old Babylon, a thousand years before Nebuchadnezzar. And he wrote a famous law code called Hammurabi's Code. And in that, it tells us that on the 30th year of his reign, there was to be a party that would last 30 days, one day of partying for each year of his reign. So that's year day equivalency in the ancient mind. In the book of Numbers, God says that the 40 days you were disobedient will result in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, a day and a year as equivalencies. In Ezekiel 4, something similar is stated. In Daniel 9, it talks about 70 weeks, but it's clear that that must mean weeks of years because it's talking about a long period of time. So for Seventh-day Adventists, the year-day principle is not grounded in an explicit statement of Scripture, but as you think through the fulfillment of prophecies, you've got to see something bigger going on here. So the 1260 days then are understood as 1260 years. Now we get to the tough part. We have just a few minutes left, so I, I'm hesitant to do that. So maybe let's just leave that aside for another time. But Adventists have traditionally understood that Revelation 12 is a prophecy of the church's history and recognizing that there are periods of history when things don't go the way God had intended for his church, sort of warning ahead of time that some of these would happen. And we may have opportunity to go into that at a later time in this lesson, but we're running out of time for today. But let's do one more thing. Let's go to number 10. And this would be a good concluding factor. In what ways is the cosmic conflict played out in our individual lives, in our country, in our church? What do you think? This idea of a cosmic conflict isn't much use unless it actually comes home in our individual lives at some point and in our environments that we can make it assist in our understanding of the bigger picture. Jay. When I was younger, I used to prefer abstraction of ideas and, and theological conflict and things. And as I've gotten older, I appreciate stories more and kind of a summary story about the practical results of Christianity versus the philosophy of Nietzsche, which you mentioned in your introduction. Larry Lichtenwalter that gave this story in an early morning devotional at Michigan camp meeting many years ago, and it may have been the most moving presentation that I've ever heard. I really appreciated it. Well, it's indelibly stamped in my memory. Friedrich Nietzsche ended up going insane gradually and being at a rehabilitation house where he spent a lot of time in the fetal position in uncontrollable shaking. And his believing Christian mother would go down there every day and pick him up in her arms and hold him in her lap. And the juxtaposition of Nietzsche's philosophy about an all-powerful God and about the real character of God, which was a comfort and a healing and a nurturing balm to Nietzsche himself, in the person of his Christian believing mother who nursed him in the last hours of his life. That's a wonderful, wonderful story and an illustration of the practical power of Christianity to overcome the power of atheistic ideas.
was 45 when he died. So being nurtured by his mother in those last years does make a lot of sense. Yeah. In conclusion, let me share what I have said before, but I think it comes helpful at this moment in time. What the cosmic conflict tells me is that God is at work in every religion and Satan is at work in every religion. We may have a tendency sometimes on the basis of prophecy for saying here are some mistakes that have been made in the past, but those are a poster child, if you wish. Those are an example for us that we don't make the same mistakes. And uh, every religion is a battleground of this great controversy as to what picture of God we will portray to the world. And God is at work in every one of our lives, and Satan is at work in every one of our lives. And what I love about the cosmic conflict concept is it means every thought, every idea, every action, every possibility in our lives, every decision has implications with infinite possibilities. And it's all part of a much bigger picture. And that gives meaning to our lives. Days are sometimes drudgery, but when they are drudgery, to remember that forging through, getting the job done, even if we can't stand it, doing the right thing, even when the wrong thing would be fun. Those positive decisions on a small scale are part of a much bigger conflict and make a difference in eternity. So I appreciate so much the cosmic conflict concept because it is so meaningful for us today. And as it brings us to a clearer picture of God, it brings comfort in the midst of distress, and it brings peace in the midst of confusion. I'm grateful every day for that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, that bigger life, that larger life that is held out before us, we are truly grateful. We pray that you would drive away the influence of the evil one. We are part of that conflict, but you have overcome, Lord. And we invite you ever more powerfully into our lives, that that overcoming might paint a beautiful picture of you to the world around us. We thank you for that opportunity and pray that you'll be with us as we continue studying these topics. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.